getting down to the short strokes of our series called Embrace Grace, Your Neighbor. And we've been talking about how grace doesn't just influence you and I in here, in this place, or even in our personal lives and hearts, but it's designed to influence those out there. So in a very real way, we've been talking about how grace doesn't just exist in here, but it's to exist out there in the marketplace, in culture, Monday through Saturday in our daily lives. And we've also seen that grace is something that's designed to be passed on to those around us, even those that don't know Christ, even those who might be antagonistic to Christ. Grace is designed to be handed off any way that we can to those in our sphere of influence. So you might remember we started off this whole series with a look at the Good Samaritan. You know, the idea that, that grace and compassion and care of our neighbor, remember that, is a good thing. And then Darrow helped us understand how through serving others we can pass grace on to them. And then we spent the last two weeks talking about evangelism, the idea of being both intentional as well as clear. And today we start a two-parter, a two-week little mini-series within this series that I'm calling Conviction. Conviction, simply the idea of sharing God's values that have now become our values with those around us, or for lack of better terms, it's the whole idea of the culture wars, and what are you and I to do with this idea of the culture wars. And, and I just want to say two quick things before I show you a video and we pray. The first thing is, I got to tell you, I'm, a, I'm going into this two weeks with a little bit of fear and trepidation. I really am. Because, you know, whenever you start talking about values and culture and all of that, these are such emotionally highly charged issues that there is something to offend everyone. Have you guys found that? I mean, there really is. And, and, and so I don't like, you know, creating waves any more than the next rest of you. And so I got to tell you, as a pastor, I've gone in, hopefully prayed up a little bit more than usual, but also just going, okay, God, give me great grace and clarity as we talk about these issues. And, uh, and yet, I think they are important issues to talk about. So I was actually going to do just one week on this, but I pulled a fast one on our creative arts team and sent an email out Thursday and said, you know what, I, I can't rush this. So we're going to spend two weeks on this. So your outline there shows three uh, sentences that you're supposed to fill in the blanks on. For those of you who have to fill in all the blanks before you go today, well, it's not going to be your day, and so it's going to be kind of a bummer, and, and you're going to have mild anxiety throughout the week until next week, which you're then going to have to fill in the rest of the blanks. But, but you'll be glad that you did, that we've slowed down a little bit to really parse out what we need to talk about here over the next couple of weeks. And lastly, I'll say this, and that is if you've ever, if you've ever reserved judgment to the end of a discussion, I beg you to do so on this topic. As I said, there's going to be something that's going to tick just about every one of us off, probably said even here today, but, but bear with me in this, please. I, I, I'm going to walk us through this week and next week a, a cogent, reasonable, reasonable discussion on what God says about his values and the culture around us. And, and I think when we get to the end of it, kind of like Isaiah 1 where the Lord says, come, let us reason together. I think if you reason with me, you're going to get to the end and go, okay, I, I get it, I see. But, but, but just reserve judgment. If you get a little bit hot in the face today, just chill, sit there, it's all right. And uh, I think we'll eventually get there on this issue. So to get us thinking, to get us all ticked off, look up here on the screen, and uh, then I'm going to pray for us, all right?
God, I pray that as we look at your word now, as we look at your truth, that God, what the next half hour would be, would be simply your truth communicated to your people. God, I know we all have good hearts here. We desire to know what you have said and apply these things to our lives. So as we open up your book now, would you help us to do that on this all-important topic of your values and the world around us? So guide us in this, we pray, this week and next. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's the starting place that I know we could all agree on, and that's that you'd have to be absolutely blind and deaf to not realize that culture has changed dramatically in the last four or five generations, if not even in our current generation. I mean, everybody agrees with that, that culture has changed dramatically since the days of silent television and the Great Depression. In fact, I had some fun this week just looking at the history of Hallmark cards. There's actually a website where you can go to to see the history of Hallmark cards beginning back in the 1930s. And as you trace the progression of Hallmark cards, you realize how much our culture has changed. And so look up here on the screen. This is a Hallmark card from 1930, and it, it, it involves Daffy Dean. Some of you probably have no idea who he is. Daffy Dean was a great baseball player, and it says, Daffy Dean says so, and I say so, so you sure ought to have a happy birthday. A relatively, relatively benign birthday card from the 1930s. Here's another one from the 1930s. Now, you might recognize her. That's Shirley Temple, right? I can promise you, at the 5 o'clock service, they're going to give me that deer-in-the-headlights look. <laughs> I have no idea who Shirley Temple is, but I can tell you guys are a little bit more mature and sophisticated. And, and, and this says, yeah, that was a nice way of saying it, wasn't it? This says, Merry Christmas to a dear little granddaughter. Again, a benign, very fun uh, birthday card there. Now, you move it to the 1940s, and, and some of you will laugh at this one. It says, Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. They weren't handing those out during Vietnam, I can tell you that, but during the war to end all wars, during World War II, that, that was a card that, that, they, that they had there. Again, it, it's kind of fun-loving a little bit, showing a cute little character there. And, and then came the 1950s, and, and some of you remember that, James Dean and all the 1950s, and America started to come of age. And, and so this card appeared. It's a birthday card. It says, you're holding up in great shape. Congratulations. And it shows, some of you are going, what are those? They're called girdles. Your grandmother wore them. Maybe some of you wear them. And, and, and girdles back then were female underwear. So, so follow me on that one, people. It is that This was about as risque as it got in the 1950s. This would be a very edgy card in the 1950s. And yet things were starting to change then. And then you moved in the 1960s, and many of you remember that, that the era of heartthrobs and hippies, right? That, that, that was the 1960s. So you had this Valentine's Day card. I love this. It says, happy Valentine's Day to someone as exciting, virile, and handsome as Cary Grant and Rock Hudson. Wow. Imagine using the word virile on a, on a greeting card back in the 1960s. Some of you don't know what it means. Look it up later. Then you have this hippie card during Christmas time. It says, we wanted to lay a Christmas gift on you, man, but with us, it's old Mother Hubbardsville, which means they don't have any money. Hippies never had any money. And so again, that depicts the changing culture in the 60s. And then what most hit me this week was when I got to the 1970s, because the 1970s, sociologists will tell you, were all about sex, self, and disco. 
You remember that. Sex, self, and disco. So imagine this card on your left in the 1930s. I didn't mind not watching the drive-in movie on our last date. Ooh. I, I mean, that's come a long way since Shirley Temple, right? And, and then you got the one on the right there, which I'm not going to read. It's just a happy birthday card talking about disco. And then culture really started to change in my generation, back in the 1980s and into the 1990s. So, so remember the Valley Girls. I'm not going to read it to you, but you can see the card behind me there, the whole Valley Girl movement that hit us in the 80s. And then in the 1990s, SNL, Saturday Night Live, it became very popular in vogue to diss Christians. I mean, people kind of gotten fed up with the evangelical right and with Christians. And so you had the church lady and Dana Carvey and this card that came out and said, well, we're very proud of ourselves with our firm body and our lack of wrinkles, aren't we? A greeting card that you might send somebody, again, just connoting the different changes in culture. And this last decade that we just came out of, I mean, it's a whole new different world right now. That card on your left there says the end of sex in the city What's the big deal? Sex and the City stopped their new shows, I guess it said, in 2004. And so even the fact that you have a show called Sex and the City, can you imagine that from the 1950s? We've gone from girdles to Sex and the City. And then you see on the right there, one of the biggest crazes right now among our young people, the whole vampire movement, Twilight. And this card just came out this year. It says, something smells really good around here. That refers, for those of you who know, to another human being. It's the whole vampire movement. I I've been so interested in this that I watched the movie Twilight the other day, and my son came in as I was watching it, Abby. He really did. And, and he goes, Dad, what are you watching? And I said, that's Twilight. I said, I'm cool. I'm rad. That's what all the kids are into. He said, Dad, 14-year-old girls are into that movie. He said, so if you want to be a 14-year-old girl, then watch that movie. And I said, oh, well, okay, go away. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's no arguing at all that culture has changed. I, I mean, just a, a cursory look at greeting cards obviously reveals this to us. And just so that we're all on the same page, some of the changes of culture have been good and certainly some not so good. I mean, as culture has changed right before our eyes, we've seen the defeat of fascism and communism. We eradicated certain diseases. We've extended life expectancy. We've streamlined communication and world travel. I mean, a lot of good things have happened in the last 100 years. And yet some not-so-good things have happened. There's been an obvious moral and spiritual decay that's occurred in our country, and everything from MTV to relevant cultural statistics bears this out. I remember when this study came out, there's a famous study done in 1998 by two respected researchers, Alexander Volokh and Lisa Snell, in which they revealed that the biggest behavioral problems reported by public school teachers in America in 1940 were as follows. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, cutting in line, violating dress code, and littering. So, so right when that World War II card came out, these were the biggest problems that teachers were having with their students. And yet by 1990, just 50 years later, everything had dramatically changed. Now the top seven behavioral problems reported by public school teachers were drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assaults. You, you can't get a more stark change than that. I mean, culture has changed, and the problems that you and I deal with now, and you and I both know this, are markedly different than what our parents dealt with. 
I mean, the biggest problem in the 1950s was whether the kid would crash the family Buick. The biggest problem now is whether the kid is going to crash on drugs. And that's a significant change in just three generations. We've gone from Leave It to Beaver to The Simpsons, from Elvis and James Dean to Sex and the City and VH1 reality shows. And there's no arguing that on a moral and spiritual level, things have gone down in a direction that our great-grandparents would probably blush at and cringe at. And so the question that I want you and I to wrestle with this week and next week is what are well-meaning and highly devoted Christ followers to do? And that's the only question I want to throw out on the table. That as we look at the culture around us and we, don't see some things, and we see some things that we don't like, what does God want us to do? What role does he want us to play in saying or doing anything in a culture that has obviously increased in its decadence? Or to fit our series that we're in right now, how and in what ways would God want you and me to pass on grace to a culture that now needs to be nudged in a different direction morally and spiritually? Three things I want to suggest to you today and next week. Three things that come directly from the Bible and build one upon the other in which added up, I believe, gives us clear direction on the what's and the how's in responding to a runaway culture around us. And here's our starting place. And it's point one in your outline, the only point we're going to look at today. But this is going to be a challenge for some of you in your theology. And that is that God has declared universal values to our world and he desires all people to follow them. Interesting. This is going to be a very, very instructive starting place for some of us because you've not bought into this. God has declared universal values to our world, and he desires everybody, get this, Christian and unchristian, believing and unbelieving alike, to follow them. And you're saying, what's that about? If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. 1 Timothy is a little book toward the tail end of the Bible. I think you can find it. If not, there is a table of contents that you can cheat and look at what page number it's on. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If you didn't bring a Bible, just look up here on the screen and we'll read this together. Follow along as I read. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And you're saying, wow, that's a really heavy passage. And it is. And notice with me there that this passage talks mainly about the law. You picked up on that. I hope you all know that's not referring to modern-day civil law, like speeding and misdemeanors and felonies and things like that. It's referring to the Old Testament moral law, the Ten Commandments, as well as other moral imperatives that are found in the Old Testament. And in order to best understand what this passage is saying here, it's important to understand, now don't miss this, that when the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament moral law, it does so in always one of three primary ways. First, it tells us that the Old Testament law, God's perfect values declared in the Old Testament, was given to convict us of sin. 
That's the first way that the New Testament refers back to Old Testament law. That it was given so that we might realize in trying to live God's law that we can't live it perfectly, that we fall very, very short, that we need grace, that we need Christ. And so the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ through showing us that we can't live up to God's standards. You can read about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 5 on your own. It was given to convict us of sin. But interestingly, the New Testament then tells us a second reason that God gave his law in the Old Testament, and that is to guide believers now in their following of God. And so it works like this. You and I look at God's declared moral values of the Old Testament, and we use them then in the choices and decisions that we make when it comes to our lives as believers. So, so as the old reformers used to say, it exists to guide the saints in the moral decisions that we make. We use the Old Testament law to inform us on what is right and wrong. So far, so good. But then there's a third aspect that the New Testament uses the Old Testament law for, and that is that it tells us that God's moral law is to be used to speak truth and values to the culture around us of what God wants for any and all people who have been created in his image, whether they have come to believe in him or not. And it's this third usage that I believe 1 Timothy 1 verses 8 through 10 is getting at here. And so notice with me, let's dig down a little bit in this passage. Notice with me that it begins by telling us here that the law is good. Do you see that there? The Old Testament law, he's saying, is good. And why is it good? Because it's God's holy and perfect standard. It reflects his character. It's what he wants, not just for Israel back then, but when you get out of the civil law and get more into the moral law, it's what he wants for everybody. The law is good. But not stopping there, this passage further tells us that the law is not just given for those who are doing well in their lives morally to the already convinced, but notice that it makes clear that the law is for the, and I quote, lawless, lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and then it lists some of the not-so-good and hurtful things that people like this do. It lists family sin, sexual sin, lying, bearing false witness. And we obviously know from the description there of how Paul the Apostle describes these people that he's not talking about believers. I hope you all know that. Paul the Apostle never uses words like this to describe believers. He never describes believers as lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. He's talking about culture at large, Roman and Greek culture back then. And so add it all up, folks. He's telling us that one of the purposes of God's values as declared in his word, in this case the Old Testament moral law, is to speak truth into a runaway culture that is destroying itself from the inside out. And so whether it was Rome or Greece some 2,000 years ago when this was written, whether it was France in the 18th century or America in the 20th century, he's saying Christians have both an opportunity as well as an obligation to graciously speak truth to the culture around them, truth as it has come to us in God's already declared word in both the Old Testament and the New Testament moral imperatives. And so I love how John Calvin, the famous Reformation leader, uh, says this some 500 years ago in his writings exactly on 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. Look up here on the screen. He says, people have a need of a bridle, 
to restrain them from slackening the reins on the lust of the flesh to fall clean away from all pursuit of unrighteousness. What's he saying there? He's simply saying that all people have a need of God's declared values, even if they haven't come home to him yet through faith in Christ. If for no other reason than to keep them from going off the deep end when it comes to doing things that we all know are unhealthy and bad for them. And the trick, folks, that I believe is to recognize what each culture in each day and age needs to hear and respond to in order to not go off the deep end. I think that's a challenge for you and I. I mean, obviously, we're not going to roll all of culture in an Old Testament theology class. Obviously, we're not going to roll all of culture in a New Testament morality class. And so, for the last 2,000 years, what well-meaning Christ followers have had to do in every culture that they found themselves in, friendly or not, is simply to wade through all the things that that culture is wrestling with and confused about and what the issues of the day are, let those rise to the surface and then lovingly and graciously and truthfully speak God's values into the culture around them. So for example, if you were in Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries as a missionary, you would have realized, as they did, that certain tribes needed to hear about the value of human life and not practicing human sacrifice. Seems like a no-brainer to you and I, but go over to Africa in the 19th century and you would realize that they were still practicing human sacrifice. And even before they started coming to Christ, the missionary said, uh, not a good thing. Not, not a good thing when it comes to God's values for any culture, whether they believe in him or not. You don't, you don't sacrifice little children to an unknown God or to any God. If you're in the Middle East in the 20th century, now the 21st, it's clear that certain countries in the Middle East need to hear about religious freedom and how to treat women. And so our missionaries right now are not just engaged in, in teaching people about Jesus and the gospel, though we'll get to that more next week, but they're also engaged in helping people learn about religious freedom and how to treat women in that culture. If you were in China today, it, it would be clear that they need to hear about how to do family planning without shunning little baby girls. If you're in Amsterdam today, it would be clear that they could use a biblical course on basic sexual morality, how to not lift up prostitution and pornography as legitimate and life-giving options for life. You get the picture. We speak lovingly and truthfully into the culture around us what God's values are for the world, and by so doing, we give them grace. It's a gift on how to help them live life as God intended, even if they're not ready yet to come to believe in Jesus. As Calvin said so well, they need a bridle to pull the reins in on their flesh, and God's values, his moral imperatives, help accomplish this. And so let's get down to the heart of it all then, shall we, for our current American culture. And the issue becomes that when you and I understand this aspect of God's grace and sharing it with our neighbor that, as we've seen, includes sharing his values as well, the question becomes, what are some of the things that our culture could use to hear? But what are some of the values that our culture has lost its way on and is confused about that loving and reasonable Christians should have the courage to speak into? And this is where my fear and trepidation come in. Because it's here that I'm about to give you a list that I promise will have something to offend everyone. 
And so you need to hang on to your pew with me, and let me just list for you some moral 101 issues that, trust me, as a theologian, I'm not adept on too many subjects, I am on theology, it's my degree, that a theologians would generally say that God has something to say on these issues, and something that could be life-giving to our culture. Here's the first one, sanctity of life. Simply put, that God values all of life, even the life of the not yet born. Secondly, the holiness of marriage. That God's creation design of monogamous heterosexual marriage, as we'll see, can bring life. How about religious liberty? Some of you didn't know that that's all throughout the Bible, that God wants any and all to freely choose him or to freely not choose him. So this idea of religious liberty is a high value for God. This one will shock some of you. How about creation care? You know, theologians have said for 2,000 years that Genesis gives us dominion over creation, that we're to utilize creation for good, but we're also to be responsible stewards of it, to be responsible with what God has blessed us with with this earth, and that, that adds up to creation care. Certainly, we need to speak sexual values into our culture today. I mean, God wants us all to live pure lives that refuse to objectify other people of the opposite sex for our own pleasure. Which, by the way, is exactly what confusion on sexual values does. We look at somebody from the opposite sex and we objectify them for our own pleasure, and that leads to pornography and prostitution, to the utilization of other people only for our own hedonistic good. And God comes in and says, no, you got it completely wrong. Adding to our list, caring for the poor and needy. Literally hundreds, if not thousands, of passages that talk in the Bible about how to, as well as the call to, care for the poor and needy. And I know this final one is a hot button, as if these others aren't, but did you know that God speaks to this idea of strangers in the land? He does. I know that's a hot button today, but trust me when I tell you that God's Word talks about the fact that we need to strike a balance between protecting our borders, the Scriptures talk about that, but also being hospitable to those who come here in need. And folks, I'm sure that there are more things that you and I could add to this list of values that we might want to share to those around us, but just look at those seven introductory things, and I'm telling you now you can see why I say there's something to offend everyone there. Because though you could hear a pin drop, especially as I got down lower on that list there, to the, some of the things that I was sharing, I know how some of you think. I mean, I started off that list, and immediately you're thinking, amen. It's about time the pastor talks about those issues. It's about time he talks about sanctity of life and religious freedom and holiness of marriage and those things. But then as soon as I mentioned creation care and the poor and needy and strangers in our land, you guys got real quiet. You guys all of a sudden go, well, wait, 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 wait. I mean, that, that, that's on, on the same list as, as sanctity of life? I would argue it is. I, I, I would put before you that God's Word talks about all of these issues. Now, here's the deal. Notice that I just gave you very cursory comments on each of these. Some of these are no-brainers on what God's Word says, and some of them we're still bickering about. Some of them are debatable on precisely what God's Word says about the issue. And so I'm engaged all week long with other believers on exactly and precisely what God's Word says on these issues. We, we grant you that. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that His Word does talk about these things. And that going back to our point here, that God cares about these things. They are values to Him. And they're not just values for inside these walls. They're values for people out there as well. 
And yet, having said that, here's the response. Now, tell me if this isn't true, that we most often get whenever we broach a discussion like this. I've heard it a thousand times. People say, well, here you go, Jamie. Just another intolerant and judgmental Christian getting all involved in politics and pushing his morality on other people. Isn't that the response we usually get? And people say, I mean, Jamie, why can't you just focus on the gospel and spiritual things? You're a pastor and avoid getting messed up in all of this politically and highly charged moral issues. And though in one sense, we've already answered this question with our look at 1 Timothy 1 and God's call to help our culture understand his values as outlined in his word, I do want to respond very pointedly and clearly, hopefully, to this often heard charge with a couple of more thoughts. And to do this, I want to address this charge that I hear more often, isn't this Christians just being pushy and getting political? I want to respond to that charge by breaking it down into its two parts. And that's, isn't this just politics part? And then address the, isn't this just pushing my morality on others' part? And so first, isn't all this simply politics that should be avoided by pastors and church people? You hear that retort often. And the simple answer is no. It isn't. And yet a more satisfactory answer would be to see it this way. Now dial into this. And that is that the list of the things that I just put up on the screen, everything from sanctity of life to the needs of the poor to sexual values to marriage to creation to religious liberty to strangers in our land are all issues that God talks about in his word. And even more so going back thousands of years speaking to every culture and it's only recently that these have become moral issues that our political culture has hijacked and made political issues. And so don't miss this. What I'm suggesting is, is that these are not political issues today that Christians are somehow trying to make into moral issues. No, it's the opposite. They're actually moral issues that our current culture has politicized. These are issues going back thousands of years that God has spoken into and that he cares for. And the mere fact that our culture has made these moral issues into political issues does not detract from their moral fiber or the fact that God cares about them. And people for thousands of years, good Christians, have been speaking into these issues to the culture around them, even sometimes when not asked, because they feel an obligation to pass grace in the form of truth onto the culture around them. They care. And so isn't it interesting? If you don't believe me, look what the Word says. Isn't it interesting that you have Daniel in the Old Testament, this young, godly Jewish leader who's been taken into exile in secular Babylon in the 5th century B.C., and we find him speaking truthfully and lovingly to the secular king Nebuchadnezzar in light of Nebuchadnezzar's selfish and focused only on him tendencies. Look at Daniel 4 verse 27 and you'll see what I mean. Daniel's talking to the secular king here and he says this. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I love that. He's basically saying, hey, king, you know what? I know you don't know Yahweh. I know you're not a follower of the Jewish faith, but I got to tell you, there's some really good moral things that come out of God. And if you could latch on to these things, then you might just have a lengthening of days if you could start to care for the oppressed and repent of the unrighteous, hurtful things that you're doing to the culture around you. Daniel cares 
about his culture around him, even secular Babylon in the 5th century, and he cares about the king. And some of you are saying, well, Jamie, read the context. The king asked for his input. You know, he had this dream. He didn't understand the dream, and so he knew Daniel could interpret dreams, and so he was looking for Daniel's help. You're right. So what do you do when they don't ask for our help? Well, you pull a John the Baptist. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. We find John the Baptist doing the exact same thing with King Herod, even when not asked. It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, don't you love this, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, let that sink in a moment, folks. This is, this is a mess. Herod is sleeping with his brother's wife, taken right from the pages of a modern-day soap opera, and John has the guts to tell him that that's not quite up to God's standards, even for a secular Roman king. And so Herod's brother's wife, Herodias, gets all threatened and gets the king to put John in prison, where, as we know, he will eventually die. And you don't miss, in the midst of all of this drama, that you have the simple reality of John the Baptist, humble, I must decrease so Jesus can increase, John the Baptist, boldly speaking into the moral fabric of Herod's life and leading. Why? Because he knew if Herod, even if he was digging his heels in on, on Judaism and Christianity, if Herod could but embrace a few of God's simple moral 101 values, it just might go better for him. And it just might go better for Rome. And it just might go better for the culture around him. Now, don't miss what he's doing there. It's profound. Isn't all, this speaking, isn't all this speaking into our culture with the values of God just engaging in worldly politics? No, it's really not. It's an extension of how you and I share grace with them, grace that speaks truth into the moral fabric of a nation and culture that we are all a part of and that we care deeply about. These are moral issues first that our culture has politicized, not the other way around. And God's people from the Bible on have always lovingly spoke God's values in a way that might help. And this then leads very naturally to the second part of our question asked a few minutes ago. And that's this. Well, isn't all these values just a way for Christians to, to push and force others to, to live life the way they do, especially when they weren't asked? I mean, aren't Christians just really being pushy here, Jamie? I mean, kind of like uninvited guests crashing a party? And there are actually two parts to this answer, what I'm going to label a biblical part and what I'm going to label an American part, just so we're clear on where each one comes from. And biblically speaking, those we're going to see next week, you and I always need to share God's values with humility, love, and gentleness. By the way, those are the words the Bible uses. The reason, however, that God wants us to share his values with a lost world is because he knows in honoring them and living them it will bring a blessing and bring joy, not just to individuals, but even to an entire culture. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like Daniel was doing with Nebuchadnezzar and John the Baptist with Herod, that they knew that if they could somehow get these secular kings of secular cultures to listen, that there just might be an inherent blessing in them if they would but live it. Now, let me give you an example how this works. I love this example right from the Bible. How many of you know what the fifth commandment is of the Big Ten? Anybody here know what the fifth commandment is? Yell it out if you know it or raise your hand. What is it? 
Honor your father and mother. My favorite commandment. I got three teenagers, so I love this one right now. <laughs> Honor your father and mother. And, and it's an amazing commandment. As we all know, it's a life-giving commandment. The logic behind it is to honor them, show respect to them, be kind and considerate to them, care for them as they age, buy them new cars in their retirement, things like that. <laughs> That's what I tell my kids. And so look at how the New Testament book of a... Why aren't you laughing, sweetheart? Anyways, look out the New Testament book of Ephesians while quoting Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 and the fifth commandment says it. I think you'll see what I'm getting at here. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And then he lists the promise. Look at verse 3. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Isn't that so cool? There's, there's logic behind God's commandments. I, I've thought about this for 30 years since I became a Christian. Even for those who are raised with awful parents, even for those who are raised with abusive parents, God still says, honor them. Set your boundaries. Don't let them abuse you. Don't let them run your life now as adults or what have you. But, but honor them. Treat them respectfully. Because if you do, it will do something in your character. It will do something in your relational base. It will do something in your soul that will make you a better person. There's an inherent blessing to honoring your father and mother, no matter what your lot in life, no matter what your situation. And he says that it may go well with you and you will live long in the land. I don't think it necessarily means long life, though that's part of it. It just means that you will live peacefully in your soul as you do life God's way. And I believe this is one of God's universal values. It's one of the Ten Commandments that he has not just for believers, but that he shares with all people. You and I can share this gracefully with those around us as we help them navigate life, even if they're not yet ready to come to Christ. Which is by, by, why, by the way, and, and I just want to give you a little bit of an admonition here, I, I hope all of you know the Ten Commandments. Now, you should have seen the look of panic in your eyes when I said, what's the Fifth Commandment? Some of you are going, oh no, I don't know. And I just want to tell you that though that won't keep you out of heaven, like if you go to heaven and God says, what's the fifth commandment? He's not going to bar the gates because you didn't know the fifth commandment. It will be kind of embarrassing if you can't at least list the big ten. Amen? And so just honestly, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a test, but, but, but you've you got to know the Ten Commandments. So maybe your homework this week is to Google the Ten Commandments because you don't even know that they're in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, though you do now. But Google the Ten Commandments and, and, and just memorize them because they're like good things to memorize. And, and I think we all know here too, and I, I know this goes without saying, but, but we're not saying, I'm not suggesting that if people live God's law that if we can get unbelievers just to live God's values, that that's going to get them to heaven or that that's going to save them. I mean, God's Word makes it very clear that there's no merit badges given to those who live His law when it comes to salvation and heaven. Only Jesus Christ, as we're going to talk about more next week, is our merit badge to get us to heaven. What we're simply saying here is that following God's values carry a blessing this side of heaven. And so God says at the very least... Don't be afraid to share them with those around you. It's a way of sharing grace. You're giving them life by giving them God's truth in the form of morality. And then a second part to this answer, to the, a second answer to this query, isn't this just pushing and forcing our values on others, is what I call the American part of the answer. Now, now think about this with me, because this, this, this one should free you up. And that is that in a democracy, which is what you and I have in our country, we're all invited to participate 
for the collective and common good. I mean, folks, don't let this one escape you. I'm telling you right now, if you lived in China, the Chinese government is not interested in what you think as a Chinese citizen. If you're in the most countries in the Middle East right now, they're not interested in what you think when it comes to the moral fabric of their nation. America is uniquely set apart for the last 200 years in that we have a democracy. It's a republic in which we are all invited, encouraged, to speak into the moral fabric of our nation, laws and legislation, even what goes on in this nation, because we knew by giving people freedom to do that, it could make possibly the best nation on earth. And you think about it, without Christians who have God's standards, who have his goodness, who know what is right and what is wrong, even though we always don't live it, we'll talk about that next week, Christians are ones who now have the freedom in this country to speak life into things that are happening in this country. And I would simply say that on biblical ground, we're certainly on good ground to do that, but even on political grounds in our country, we're encouraged to do that. So isn't it ironic, just two nights ago, I was reading one of my novels. I love to read novels. I like Clancy and all those guys. And, and I was reading Brian Haig, his novel, Man in the Middle. I've had it for a while, and I just picked it up and started reading it. And he's got this nonfiction introduction to it. And as I was reading that, he makes the comment, he says, in a healthy, functioning democracy, citizens are supposed to care, to participate, and to raise their voices. And I said, amen. It's true that when it comes to those issues that we listed earlier, you and I are supposed to care, we're supposed to participate, and we're supposed to raise our voices. And again, I'm a lawyer's kid. I know what the retort is to this. People say to me when I get to this point in the argument, they say, well, Jamie, isn't this just legislating morality? And you know, you can't legislate morality. And my response is, since when? I mean, honestly, think about the logic of people who say you can't legislate morality. Does that mean we don't legislate anti-murder laws? That we don't legislate anti-rape laws? That we don't legislate anti-stealing laws? That we don't legislate for high corporations anti-lying laws? Of course we do. We legislate morality all the time. The issue is not do you legislate morality, now don't miss this, the issue is what morality do you legislate? That's the issue. And our secular American culture has yet to find a foundation of moral values that they can all agree upon in which we can start having reasonable legislation when it comes to making a great society. We started off great, but as we've seen in the last 80 years, things are starting to crumble from within. And it's some of the more reasonable voices that say maybe the Judeo-Christian heritage that we were originally founded on offers a wonderful moral foundation, some moral fabric on which to build, continue to build our society upon. And obviously, I concur. And I would hope, as a Christ follower here today, that you would con concur. This isn't pushing our values on other people. It's speaking into the democratic process, which we've all been encouraged to do. And Christians haven't always done it well. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk next week about how Christians have many times postured themselves very badly in this area. And we've made awful decisions. And we've misinterpreted the Bible. And we've been too forceful. I mean, I know all that. But, but jettisoning that just for this week and pausing, pushing the pause button a second, simply ask yourself, is it reasonable that God has given us values to all creation in which you and I are the holders of? Values that touch everything from strangers in the land to creation care to sanctity of life to marriage to religious liberty. I mean, those are just some of the hot buttons today. There's so many more. And that you and I as carriers of those grace values 
now have the wonderful obligation to share those with those around us in loving, kind, and gentle ways. That's what God calls us to. That's what I want you to ponder this week. Next week, we're going to continue this discussion and talk about how you and I do that, how we posture ourselves, how we do so without obliterating the cross, because there's been times in the past where we've obliterated the cross and made Christianity just about values. We're going to talk about all those things. But for this week, I want to pull some of you more to the center. Some of you have never thought that you should speak into the values of your culture. You should. You not just can, but you should. And as one who has a conscience and one who's discerning with the Word of God, as you reason with Him on what the answers are to some of these complex issues, we should speak. Because we have, we're carriers of His grace, and God always wants us to pass grace on. We're going to go to the communion table right now, so as the servers come forward, I would like you all to bow with me and let's pray. And then we're going to have one last act of worship, and then we're going to be dismissed. So would you bow with me? Father God, I thank you that in your word, you tend to bring clarity into areas that we're very confused in. And Lord, if there's one area where Christians have been all over the map, it's this area of the culture wars and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to share values with those around us. And though certainly, Lord, we've not solved all the dilemmas here this morning, we have at least put on the table the fact that you care about these things because you care about us. And like a good parent who cares about his children, Lord, you've shared with us what is right and what is good and what is holy and what is set apart. And certainly as Christians, we embrace these things, but we also want to help our culture. So God, help us to do that. Help us to get on board with your agenda this week and the next week, even get on board with the how. God, we know all of this is possible because of what Jesus did for us, that if it wasn't for the cross, if it wasn't for forgiveness of sin, if it wasn't for his salvation that he's given us, we wouldn't even be having this discussion on what we now do as believers in him. So Lord, we want to back up now and we want to go to the table. We want to take these elements. We want to hold them. We want to worship you. We want to reflect. And God, more than anything, I pray that you bring home to us that this bread and this juice are the body and blood of Jesus Christ represented before us. And as we focus on the heart of our salvation, we're prepared for the week ahead. So bless this time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.